0: The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it.
1: You guys uh, ready for a tornado? (laughs) Another fun-filled day in the Midwest.
2: See, it's been a while since we've had a tornado warning. I'm kind of missing them. You mean
1: since January?
2: (laughs) We had a tornado... Did we? Yes, we did. No, did we have a watch or did we have a warning?
1: Oh, I don't know.
3: This is the first time that I can remember ever... That school was let out early because of an impending winds oh, it was? events. Yes, they're letting them out early today.
2: Oh. And
3: yeah. you know what? Honestly, it gives me an excuse to go home early, which I appreciate <laughs> that. I got to go protect my 15 year old daughter who, you know, I, you know,
2: <laughs> who doesn't want you to protect she's her. A little, she's I a mean. little tiny baby.
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: a little tiny baby. A shout out to Dave's teenager. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcoat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com.
3: Welcome back to the Shortcode Podcast, the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, with me today in the SCP studio some real forces of nature in medical education she is a tidal wave of likability it's PA1 Kelsey Porter
0: hello happy to be here
3: a brilliant bolt from the blue it's MD PhD student Miranda Skeen
2: it was a PowerPoint notification on the screen and it was very distracting
3: I'm sorry well use your brilliance to not be distracted <laughs> sounds <about>
2: good it.
3: <laughs> brilliant bolt of blue <laughs> And he makes my hair stand on end whenever he's near. It's M1 Jeff Goddard. Not for the reasons you'd expect, but here we are. <laughs> I wrote that uh, days ago before there was even...
2: You did. ...a threat
3: of impending weather. and I. So this is your fault. Is and I works. can't believe how well
2: <laughs>
3: that, that worked. But yeah, welcome back to the show. I We have a serious topic to talk about. Data examined by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which dates back to 2020 and 2021, said that gun violence is now the leading cause of death In children and teens between the ages of 1 and 19 years old. Uh, 4,357 people in that age bracket died of gun violence in those years versus 4,100. And 12 motor vehicle deaths. Now, we can quibble about the age range used there. If you exclude 18 and 19 year olds, MVAs are still in children.
2: Okay, but that's an arbitrary thing to exclude. It's
3: always our, you know, like what, right? What's the definition of child, you know, like all this kind of stuff. Nevertheless, it seemed clear. It should also be noted that
1: we exclude anybody under the age of one.
3: Also, true. For the same reason. For the same reason. yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, it seemed clear to you, Jeff, that this was something worth talking about as a future healthcare provider. And before we begin though, I would do want to emphasize this will be a discussion that focuses less on the politics of gun availability and ownership And more on the fact of gun violence and how medicine might contribute to our understanding and mitigation of the problem. Is that fair? Is that a a fair disclaimer? I think that's
1: reasonable. Yeah,
3: although It is possible that politics will enter the discussion tangentially. So if that isn't your cup of tea We understand if you want to spend your time listening to something else totally cool so Jeff, start us off here. What were you thinking about when you proposed this topic?
1: Oh, so many things. And there are so many directions this could go. I feel like it will handle it respectfully either way. So so some of the thoughts that I've had specifically around children. So I read the Johns Hopkins has a center for gun violence where they study this topic with the utmost scientific rigor. And they put out a study during right after 2020 as well. So I have some data this is less focused on children and more focused on the community at a as a as a whole homicides um in the United States were about 24,000. These are all going to be rounded numbers because that's just easier. And with firearms, 19,000. So that's 79% of all homicides in the year 2020, which was an aberrant year for most things anyway, but still a reason, like one of the most recent years that we have good data on. So 79% of all homicides in the United States were performed with firearms. And then suicides, 53%. I would like to note that there were double the number of Suicides as there were homicides in the United States, but during that time, during that time, okay, yeah, yes, and so this is something we're thinking about. So, in comparison to, say, since you brought up motor vehicle accidents, which is a leading cause of death for, um, um a leading cause of death for children up through 19 years of age. firearm deaths are now in the United States total three times the car crash deaths in the United States when taking all populations into account. Um, this is in large part due to the increased number of suicides using firearms, right? But the, they've been tracking this data since the seventies when we have put in quite a bit of, um, regulation and uh, public messaging into how are we going to address car accidents as a public health issue to to mitigate those deaths yeah
3: it's hard to remember just to put this into context it wasn't so long ago that um motor vehicles were designed such that they very easily killed people who got into accidents and uh, Ralph Nader is alive is around and he is the one who sort of brought attention to there is credited with being attention to you know this particular cause of death and with his book Unsafe at Any Speed and that sort of touched off a Change in the way. Yes.
2: Sorry. I had to look up Ralph Nader's Wikipedia page. And following the publication of Unsafe at Any Speed, Nader led a group of volunteer law students dubbed Nader's Raiders in nice. <laughs> an investigation of the FTC.
3: I mean, the, the point is that he, you know. Don't be a Nader hater, guys. His, <laughs>
2: be a Nader Raider.
3: <laughs> his his work, and I'm sure those of many others, sort of helped bring attention to the causes of motor vehicle deaths and really touched off a revolution you know now we have seatbelts, we have airbags we have cars that are not designed with so many chrome bits that can stab you in the bits when you get into an accident
1: <laughs> also it should be noted one of the big complaints of old car people not age people that enjoy like older vehicles sure. yeah and are snobs about that one of their complaints is that cars crumple a lot more today that is by design yeah that's yeah. The, yeah. the physics of the crumpling is that you are receiving less force to your body because yeah. it's being absorbed by the crumpling metal
2: yeah that the car is designed to give its life to save yours yeah. that's how they're that's yeah. how they're made, as
1: opposed to the cars that are built like tanks, and they run into a wall, and all of that force <laughs> goes through the metal, doesn't crumple at all, and right into your body. That's right. not yeah. where you want when it. When
2: force is applied, the squishiest thing dies first. So they make the car squishier than you. <laughs> yeah,
1: That's so the, an excellent uh, way to
3: put that. So I think the point in bringing up that is that you know a problem was recognized, it was studied, and the results of that study sort of revolutionized how we understood that cars should be made. Yeah. And maybe that same logic, this particular uh, cause of death.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things I really like about using motor vehicle safety as a parallel is it's not a conversation about whether or not you should have a car. Yeah. (laughs) Or when or where you should. Well, it is a little bit about when or where you should drive a car, but it's not necessarily about sort of should cars exist or. Because I know that's a lot of the pushback on some of the firearm regulations is people feeling like their sense of independence or their sense of ownership is being stepped on. And I think from a public health perspective. Or even
3: their sense of safety. I mean, some or people, even their sense of safety, Absolutely. Or, or, or their livelihood yeah. or their ability to of, put food on the table or whatever, yes. you know, reason, whatever potentially whatever legitimate reasons. reason they might have.
0: And it's less about that. And it's more about creating different parameters that make the use and purchase and other aspects of firearms safer, sort of like with cars, as you were mentioning, how they're designed, how the roads are designed, how all of that works together, because I think mm-hmm. it's much more of a, it's the environment and the context more so than, the, I mean, the instrument itself has a very big role in it, but I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I like that because most people wouldn't be opposed to making cars safer and designing roads and cities in such a way that we can use them more safely, and so I think if it's really framed from the safety perspective, I think that takes a little bit of the initial opposition and sort of refocuses the subject. I think if that makes sense. Yeah.
3: One of the things about the, I mean, if you're, we're going to continue to draw this parallel between automotive safety and 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 gun safety is the fact that you know people were very opposed to seatbelts um, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. reasons that are kind of hard to remember at this point because I yeah. think I think most people acknowledge that seatbelts save lives, but people were opposed to them as a matter of sort of one's freedom not to do something in their own vehicle.
2: Yeah. Um,
3: So that's also something to keep in mind about this analogy. Like there are some similarities and Mm -hmm. focusing solely on safety won't appease everybody, but I think it's a good
1: idea. And that's fair. You know, there are, there is an analogy here that hopefully I'm not stretching seatbelts in some very rare instances can do more harm than good. Right. But for the vast majority of people, when seatbelts are employed, they're done in such a way that it saves lives right or saves injury so so there is no perfect solution exactly
3: is what you're saying
1: yeah Yeah. and and i think that's fair to look at when we're looking at things like gun violence as a medical issue is we're recognizing that any solution isn't going to be perfect yeah but a solution is better than no solution and again to compare it to cars because I, i i really like this comparison so There are currently about 330 million people in the United States, which is an actual... Infa- unfathomable number like no nobody can genuinely like picture in their mind what does 33 million people look like right i just have to look at my bank account
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: when you're dave it when all i'm dave yeah when you're dave you'll understand if each one of these dollar bills was a person
0: we just look at our debt yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, tish.
1: but and there are an estimated about 400 million guns in the united states so that's more than one gun per person considering the fact that only 20 to 30 percent of households admit to owning a gun. There is some survey bias there, right? But admit to owning a gun, that's suggesting that perhaps four guns per gun owner. I bring this up specifically to say that it is an unreasonable policy decision to say that we will just get rid of guns yeah that that is i don't it's just like like that ship has
3: sailed probably for this country sailed back in you know 1776
1: yeah about that time i would say that right but it's the same with cars right we're not saying we get rid of cars but every time there's an there is a situation around cars where we can recognize a an increased risk due to a behavior such as texting and driving we create legislation around mitigating the potential harms around something that we know is going to exist cars yeah and using them in a more safe manner. Right? Yeah.
3: Worth noting that this week uh, the iOS devices... That can't be used hands free, I guess, or you can, so you can only do very specific things. You can only poke at something once, yeah. Things like that. So that's a that's sort of a parallel, also. Yeah, go I want to
2: circle back to, and I know we're trying to avoid politics, but I need to say this because I want to circle back to that thing where it's like getting rid of guns is an unreasonable policy. I have yet to see that be floated as a policy outside of like essentially internet culture. Like, there's obviously some internet subspaces where everything gets floated, but like I have yet to see an actual politician float actual legislation that would like ban guns in america and yet every single time this policy gets brought up that is the straw man that everybody starts railing against when they're talking about like protecting the second amendment pretending the right of people to own firearms it's like nobody is attacking that and it really it is kind of frustrating because they're framing it as an attack when it should be framed as a public health issue where it's like we have an issue how do we address it no one is like going to completely take this away you're arguing against a position that nobody is actually advocating for
1: so i okay i disagree okay i think that it is fair to say that politicians as a whole are a reasonably pragmatic group just by nature of their job they are aware that compromise has to be had so even if the in their private thoughts they thought we should get rid of all of the guns in the united states you're right politicians yeah. don't typically put forth any legislation anywhere near that effect. Yeah. But the problem with having things like the internet is public opinion exists and it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not a politician is pushing for a specific policy. If a lot of people on in the community are saying it, if say I were well let's just stay on this issue, right? If I say that like as a gun owner, I see that a lot of people on the internet really do want to ban all guns. Yeah. There is still You're still in the community. Even if the politicians aren't doing that, I can still see that concern, which is why I brought it up because we recognize, politicians recognize, and most people who are trying to find an actual solution and not just Mm -hmm.
3: a rhetorical device
1: yeah, or or an emotional appeal, Mm -hmm. we recognize that's not going to work and we're not trying to do that. And I think that was my point is that like, I agree with you. Some people are saying that, but. You're right, nobody is actually trying to do that because the people that have the ability to do things aren't really that extreme. Yeah. They're trying to find compromises that actually move things forward.
3: Let's talk for a minute about why 2020 was anom- anomalous in, in the data
2: well, golly gee, <laughs> what happened in 2020 that might possibly skew I know. Inter- people interacting?
3: I know, but I think it's important to at least bring up. It seems obvious, but just in case somebody out there was living under a rock, we did have a uh, we did have a couple of events in 2020. Just a few <laughs> things like just a, a f- few
2: little like minor global
3: incidents. shutdown. <laughs> Pan- response to the <laughs> pandemic. Um, we had, uh, you know, uh, nationwide civil unrest. We, there were, you know, things changed quite a bit during that time in terms of how much time one spends at home. Emotions ran high. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to point, point out why that became a thing because um, I think it's important to understand that. More deaths happened with firearms in part because people had more access to them.
2: Yeah, I and think that, that's and period. Yeah. They
3: were home where the guns are.
2: Yeah, yeah so So, for
1: example, the group that was most prone to suicide, for which guns were far and away the more common method, those were the demographic that was most at risk were men- White over the age of 65. Like one could understand how during a global pandemic that was disproportionately hurt, harming older people, a population that has higher access to firearms. You may have
3: just disp- been disproportionately affected by the, the uh, having to stay home.
1: Yeah. How this might be. Th- things are kind of coming together in an intuitive way yeah. right that's not to say that these things are causal but there certainly seems to be an association yeah, yeah.
0: another important 2020 thread um, i believe the john hopkins report referenced it as well was the rise in domestic violence and then those who had access to firearms are more likely to have fatalities in their home related to domestic violence mm-hmm. and if not fatalities just major injuries or even just use they mentioned like using that as a threat and sort of the emotional abuse that can occur but firearms definitely played a role in the rates of death as a result of increased domestic violence which was sort of seen as a trend during the pandemic as well.
2: You bring up a good point and I don't know if you have like stats you can pull up on your iPad of magic but it's my understanding that like most like firearm murders and firearm like homicides. Tend to be like between people that know each other as opposed to, you know, like random shootings, random, like, you know, street violence, things like that. And, like, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't, like, this isn't something I study, but that is something where studying gun violence from a public health perspective as opposed to, you know, from a strictly political perspective can be very helpful because you see where are the problem spots and how do we address the problem spots.
1: Yeah. So it te- it does tend to be like all violence. It tends to be between people that already know each other. Another interesting thing that one should point out. So obviously there are emotional um, flash, flashbulb memories of gun violence. School gun violence is something that comes up quite a bit for this, right? Particularly egregious family incidents where children are harmed come up. I don't think that like, it makes sense that those are the things that stick in our memory, but we like to look at greater trends than just individual experiences, right? To better understand how can we overall drive down deaths, right? Yeah. Just like any disease. If we have a particularly gruesome case of diphtheria, for example, is that's what's is that going to drive our public health policy, or is the overall trend of diphtheria going to drive our public health policy? Hopefully it's the overall trend, right? Because we're going to save more lives that way. Not mm-hmm. to be too consequentialist about it, but that just that's typically how we approach public health. So with gun violence, states that have higher incidences, according to this Johns Hopkins report, make a guess. Make a guess, guys. States that you would expect to see higher rates of gun violence.
2: See, I don't know whether this is the like... Let's go with per
1: capita, probably,
3: right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, why
2: not? Yeah. Actually, that is a fair point to make because I think like overall, I think Texas might have the most, but it's because Texas has the most land area and like most people. So
1: yeah, it's definitely, we're definitely going to do per 100,000 people.
2: Okay. Oh, I don't know. I know, like, because my gut instinct... And here's the thing. Whenever you talk about a public health question, and I'm sure you've seen this in medical school, and it asks, oh, where do you think health outcomes are the worst? It's always like the southeast the corner of the states. So it's always showing up in red. So it's like, that's my instinct. But I'm wondering if this is a trick question.
1: It is not. Uh. I think that was... Um That was a good instinct on your part.
2: Yeah. Well, the way you phrased it, you were like, where do you think? There
1: are a lot of reasons. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Appalachia and that place has my heart and soul. But there are a lot of reasons that are not necessarily the fault of the people that live there, Mm. that they have a lot of health outcomes that are below national average. But yes, Mississippi and Alabama are two of the most dangerous states per capita for gun violence. Some of the safest places in the union, unexpectedly, I also lived in Manhattan, New York, Manhattan, new york state one of the safest places
2: that actually doesn't
1: surprise me got knocked out by the safest place in the country hawaii
2: yeah that does not surprise me yeah Uh, and there's a there's an interesting well if i may hazard a a guess i would kind of argue that most of these tend to be correlated with like obviously higher crime rates go along with higher poverty rates it's so, like if you're talking about manhattan and hawaii those a lot of rich people live in manhattan and hawaii and a lot of poor people live in mississippi and alabama
1: yeah uh, so i mean it's fair to point out that there are a lot of poor people who live in manhattan as well you don't fair, get a city yeah. unless you have people that work in the city right but correct me if that's they fair. live outside the city i was gonna say don't they live in harlem is 100 <laughs> that that said I, that's a reasonable way to look at it but it, it's also because places i put into practice policies from a public health standpoint, i like, how are we going to keep our communities safer? This drives down costs, which helps hospitals, which makes us focus on the things that patients need to be focused on, right? Instead of these issues. It's also noted, should be noted that because this is one of the ones near us that people always like to point out, Chicago, Illinois is on the lower end of the medium group. So they are uh,
2: the medium. sorry clarify
1: of states with gun violence. So they have Thank less you. gun violence than average and they are on the lower end of gun violence in kind of the middling states.
3: Short coats, we love to hear from you no matter what That's it's about. so call us at 347 short CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show
0: give examples of the types of policies that have been most effective because I think from a public health perspective that's always my question is like even if we go back to the motor vehicle example there were probably a ton of things thrown out there and some of them have led to this lasting change you know airbags seat belts whatever it may be for gun violence I think we're still sort of in the growing pains of like it's not that it's a super recent issue, but I think it's been growing so fast that I think a lot of public health professionals are trying a lot of different things. And I would love to know if there's certain trends or things that have been seen that they've done that they can point to that they think are well correlated with those improved safety rates.
1: Yeah. So some of the things that they had talked about were better communication, especially because as healthcare workers trying to have a conversation with our our families that are coming in. Um are their firearms in the home what is being done to make sure that those firearms are properly stored in a way that is going to keep everybody safe and this isn't in a oh you're a bad parent for having in the, in the home kind of way it's a recognizing that this is this is one of the leading causes of death for children and it's not just because of what happens in the school it's also what happens in the home yeah. and so what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen just like we make sure that our 12 year old can't get access to the car we yes. try to make sure our 12-year-old can't get access or unsupervised access to dangerous weapons that could cause harm if they're not careful, right? Just mm-hmm. like we try to make sure that our children are um, properly trained to drive our cars with permits and then licensing, right? We try to do that encourage the same thing with firearm safety courses and those types of things if you're going to have firearms in the home. And those dramatically help. Those aren't the only policies that seem to work. And I couldn't tell you all of the other ones that they've suggested, but they did compare it significantly to driving. Yeah, Kind of the same thing. You've got yeah. this dangerous machine that is going to exist in our lives. It's not going away. How can we manage the safety around it better?
2: Yeah, and it's, it is a relevant comparison. Like, I don't want to overextend the metaphor, but it is a relevant comparison because it's the same thing where, yes, technically it is your individually owned things so you can make a solid argument that your own safety is your own responsibility but at the same time there are also you know other people around that could be harmed because of your dangerous things so it makes sense to have actual in-place regulations to say hey you can't do this that you can't drive when you're drunk you have to have a permit your 10 year old cannot go down the highway that's not don't do that
1: yeah and I think pointing out the things as healthcare workers this is going to be something that we need to do and obviously there are some laws around because of the NRA who like every other group they have things that are very important to them and that's where i'm going to leave that but (laughs) probably wise (laughs) but they have had a bit of a butting of heads with public health officials in the past on messaging around firearm safety and so so there are some limitations there but one of the things that that we as clinicians can do is try to have unemotional conversations about just simple facts right like for example saying i understand that you want to protect your family that's why you have this firearm right are you like so that you are aware children are much more likely to be harmed by a firearm existing in the home because of an accident yeah. than they are from any form of home invasion, right? Just it, the astronomical differences, several orders of magnitude difference in risk, and being aware of that, being able to like help them do a risk assessment on that level, and, and not in a judgment way, just kind of yeah. like an explan- explanatory way, and saying like, if your goal is to protect your children, this is the best, statistically speaking, this is the best way you can do it. Yeah. Just like we would with trying to help them do a risk assessment with any medical treatment. We say, if this is your goal, I'm trying to make sure that I understand your goal, now, let's talk about what the best way to achieve that goal is.
2: Yeah. I actually, I remember on my family medicine rotation, one of the things that they would do during well-child, like, well-child checks is say, like, hey, do you have any firearms in the house? And if you do, like, do you have a gun safe? And are you, like, making sure that is, like, kept locked and out of access at all times? I mean, so.
1: the, the data are in. It is one of the leading causes of death in this age group. And it's not... Um, Like, obviously, violence is an issue, right? And and you can tease out specific demographics that are higher risk. Surprise, surprise. It's more impoverished communities where things are already harder, right? So stress is much higher. And so violence is much more common because stress is one of the triggers for violence, right? But that said, it's still a leading cause of accidental harm and accidental death is accidental firearm discharge.
0: Yeah. I just want to jump off your point a little bit about facilitating that conversation with patients. We actually had a firearm safety panel as part of our first year medical PA curriculum, which I really appreciated a couple weeks back. When we had like a primary care provider and a couple others just kind of talking about tips for that. And one of the takeaways I really loved, one of our physician assistant professors was mentioning just the role we can play in educating ourselves about simple things, like you were saying, the data, the facts, but then also take a firearm safety course. Like, We're in Iowa. There's lots of great places Mm -hmm. where you could just go and learn about specifics about firearm safety, or if you're not comfortable doing that, maybe just read up on it a little bit. He mentioned, you know, go learn about gun safes. Like It's one thing to say, make sure your gun is protected and locked up. And it's another for a family to say, okay, well, I don't have $5,000 for the top safe. What's a cheaper option? So maybe just, you know, storing the weapon and the ammunition completely separately, things like that. Yeah. So I think just recognizing that we... Are empowered to play that role because I know for me like I know my dad grew up hunting in North Dakota And I've always sort of been familiar with that But I didn't grow up being super aware of that And so rather than seeing it as something that the patient should be fully informed of I think the more we inform ourselves not only does that help us Counsel our patients, but it also gives us credibility because if they trust us on that they might be more likely to work with us on it
3: I think it may also sort of help build an alliance there you know, if you can demonstrate that, you know, sort of what you're talking about, it's just always a good idea to meet your patients where they are and to Mm -hmm. understand something about their lives. And if you can do something as simple as take a firearm safety class, and you know, then that gives you a little extra tool. I love this idea. I've
1: heard it called moral authority, not in the sense of like, I'm right and you're wrong, but more in the sense of like, I understand where you're coming from. And I've had some experience in this realm now because I've taken the firearm safety course or whatever. And I've done the work to educate myself to be to meet you where you are yep. to now be somebody that can speak to this right. right instead of somebody that is just has emotional attachment to the issue and no no data no no expertise.
0: I completely agree. One other thing I think as healthcare providers, one thing we work a lot on, especially in this first year, is framing certain conversations, and we call it signposting. Usually, so mm-hmm. the idea of if you're going to ask someone about their sexual health, you don't just dive right in and you say these are some questions I ask all my patients because they're I like important. to start with do you there's always that option so about gonorrhea uh, yeah, yeah and by the way do you smoke do you do drugs do you do alcohol tell me yeah. and so we work a lot on phrasing it you know these are questions i ask all my patients that yeah. can paint a broader picture of their health you know etc we have a whole way of doing that so for firearms for some people it might feel natural maybe you have the rapport to just kind of lead in you know in part of your social history do you have firearms in the home maybe someone won't even blink i think It also could be an option to just be really kind of play with that phrasing a little. So saying something like, you know, many of my patients have firearms at home and also have children. And so they really care about storing them safely. Is that something that you'd like to talk about today? So something that just normalizes it, that doesn't say I'm trying to get in your business or I'm trying to regulate you or I'm trying to control your guns. Like, I just think it's such a simple shift. But even in the feedback sessions we do with practice patients, I've been told multiple times the way you ask that question or the way you told me you were going to ask that question changed my willingness to open up to you. Yeah. Um, so I think just really starting off the conversation in a way that's open and that's clear. And then to the point I think Jeff was just making about, you know, we're on the same team. I'm educated on this issue. I think it's an important one and I'm not judging you. I think all of those factors can actually make the difference between whether our patient sees us as a collaborator and chooses to work with us or whether it's like, oh just one more thing my doctor or my PA is trying to control about my life or whatever it is. Yeah. So. And I think like to
2: kind of jump off of that especially when we're talking about parents i feel like parents in general have quite a lot of information thrust at them often not kindly so like for example if a parent like has a gun or several in the house and they maybe someone has just told them like you're a terrible person because you have like guns and a child what the hell is wrong with you if like the physician doesn't signpost that well and doesn't clarify that like no i just want to make sure everything is safe then the person may have like some i
3: your messages is just going to get lumped in with all. Yeah, it's
2: others. just going to get lumped in as like, oh, this is just one more person trying to judge me for the way I live my life. So I think it is important, and this is why I think it's also important to educate and be like, hey, I don't, I'm not going to make any judgments about like your fitness to be a parent, you know, your life, anything like that. I'm just coming to it from, I am an expert on health, public health, my patients' health. I'm going to, I'm giving you this information as your advocate, not as someone who's trying to tell you how you need to live.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
3: our episode today is sponsored by panacea financial it's a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors panacea financial is designed for medical students and residents as it was founded by two doctors that were financially frustrated during their training thousands of doctors have used their prn personal loan to avoid credit cards and use a better way to cover expenses for residency relocation or other life expenses panacea's pr and personal loan does not require a cosigner has no minimum credit score requirement and has interest rates starting at half of a typical credit card they also offer a period of no or reduced payments on their pr and personal loan so go to panaceafinancialcom matchday to learn more about panacea and get other helpful information on matchday residency transition panacea financial is a division of premise member fdic thanks for the support panacea let's get back to the podcast a lot of the discussion around um guns ignores the fact and this is the same for the for drugs guns are fun (laughs) i mean they are i mean if you you know depending on how you use them if you didn't buy it strictly for you know one purpose or another recreational gun ownership is a thing yeah Um, absolutely
1: it's fun to take your gun to a range and i don't know if that's just like our monkey brain that's just like big boom I mean we love that shit and
3: that's fine you know that's so cool it's the reason why I like watching you know the hydraulic press channel it's the you know like yeah mayhem is kind of fun fourth of July is literally just big explosions big explosions I like sitting around a fire I like watching things burn you know like
2: yeah and it's like I see where you're coming from because it's like I come also because I'm a big hunting advocate because I come from Colorado where the deer are like taking Uh, over an actual public menace so i'm like please some people who like guns please go outside and shoot them that would be wonderful but also i come from you know my family has been like pretty personally affected by firearm violence yeah so like i'm kind of of two minds whenever we talk about this like on the one hand absolutely on the other hand yeah, like you know.
3: <laughs> I just think it's another factor to keep in mind. You know, yep. when you're talking with people, you know, and I think that's something that can be addressed by taking, you know, gun safety class. Um, you know, going to a range is figuring out why people like this, and then mm-hmm. framing your discussion around. Yeah. Well, with those things in mind, anyway.
2: Yeah, because de- depending on where they're coming from, they're going to have a lot of people just have emotions about this topic, and if you're going into a discussion with a patient. It's maybe worth finding out, okay, what are your emotions about this topic? Because regardless of which side you're on, it can be pretty strong.
1: Yeah, so. I think that's, I would like to add that finding out their motivation is good. Like, is it, it, I in some sense, it's a lot easier to have the conversation with somebody that says, well, I just like big booms. I'm like, yeah. all right, that's fine. <laughs> totally fair. And, I, and if you want to raise your kids around big booms, because like, that's part of being fun as a parent. I mean, people put their kids in football and. Yeah. That's, yeah. That that's a is, great right? point. Yeah. I mean, one uh, would argue. Yeah. I, and it's not a difficult argument. Right. So um, it, there are always going to be risks. So let's mitigate those risks. Yeah. And in a way that I don't want you to feel judged or anything it really happened that are nuanced tales that have made a lot of people very uncomfortable and led to a lot more violence. You have things like Waco or Ruby Ridge or things like that. Right. Yeah. That people that own firearms see this as a very real um like extant existential threat even in that situation there's such an emotional attachment to that fear that it's kind of at least recognizing that and and helping them feel like you know you're not a bad person for being afraid of something yeah um the only thing i would hope at that point is to try to contextualize like the actual risk to your child or to you is much higher unless you you secure your weapons in a safe way.
2: Yeah, um. and, and I think, like, a lot of people when it comes to... And I think something that you'd be touching on is sussing out their ability to be persuaded. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this applies to way more than just firearms. This applies to smoking. This applies to, you know, healthy eating. This applies to, like, all kinds of things. Where, like, are you, like basically if i were to talk to you could i influence your behavior and if the i mean you don't ask that that's like <laughs> that yeah. sounds way too creepy it's, it's like you yeah, said like, very, like with smoking like i'm
1: not gonna beat you over the head with nicotine patches if there's like you just don't want to have that conversation yeah it's right? like like if
2: you smoke two packs a day and i ask you like are you like open to quitting smoking and they say nope it's like okay well then i'm just not going to try because yeah. if even if i try you're just gonna lose all I'm going to do is erode your confidence in me. Yeah. So like I'm just not going to go there and then in the future, hopefully you're still my patient, we can still talk. Yeah. yeah.
3: Always remember, I guess, one of the things I've heard is always remember that your your goal isn't to fix the problem right then and there. Yeah. It's kind of tempting to want to do that and in fact, I think there's a little bit of a of a I don't know what the right word is, but there's a little bit of a bias towards that. Um, in medical education, like fix the problem. Your patient is in front of you. Fix the problem now. Yeah. Um, but your real and, goal and is a,
1: the bias in a, in a medical practice in the United States. I to mean, do.
3: You have fifteen I
2: think minutes. Go, fix it.
3: The real goal is probably to keep them coming back,
2: Yeah, you know, so that they
3: can, so that you can have that conversation when they're ready to have that conversation. Yeah.
2: It's kind of like going to a bad restaurant. It's like your patient may not tell you, oh, I've, you know, I've lost confidence in you. They're just not going to come back. Just come like back. if you're served like a mediocre dish, you may not send it back, but you're not going to go back to that restaurant. So it's like,
3: and you'd be surprised how little it takes for a patient to decide not to come back. <laughs> and I'll tell you a story. Oh dear. From my personal Um, My personal physician for years one day asked me who is my primary care provider (gasps) (laughs) and all of a sudden I was confronted by the fact potential fact I don't know like what engendered this discussion what engendered this question but my immediate thought was he's trying to get rid of me
2: is it
1: not you (laughs) I thought it was you this whole time
3: yeah. I mean it could have been a mix up there could be any number of reasons I switched doctors and I did not go back to medicine but you know
1: yeah.
0: yeah a sort of a counterpoint maybe medical education is improving a little bit in terms of behavioral change actually this this model has probably been around for years I'm not sure when they started um, teaching it but we have learned a Um, or started to be introduced to the concept of motivational interviewing, what we were all just talking about. So the idea of see if someone's even open to a certain change, whether that's a dietary change, quitting smoking, and if they're like, nope, don't want to talk about it. It's not our job to pressure them, but Rather, okay, next time you're here, maybe we'll check in and see how you're doing. And then once you sort of start to see a little bit of crack in the armor, if they're like, well, it has been on my mind recently, you might sort of lead into another set of questions and and help them make a game plan eventually. Um, But I think for firearm safety that could definitely be a great option of just assessing where the patient's at and what sort of change they may or may not be willing to make. I think with that, having sort of different options and modulation, so like we mentioned, maybe they don't have the money or the interest in like one of these full fancy safes, that would be the the utmost, the most safe thing they could do. Um, they tell you that they have their gun loaded next to their bed in case someone breaks <laughs> into the night. Um, I think that was actually an example on our panel and the idea is like, Okay, so would you be willing to, you know, unload the weapon and store the ammunition across the room or would you be willing to, you know, sort of taking little steps that for the patient might not seem like such a drastic change but that would actually would impact the chances that their 2-year-old, you know, finds the weapon in X and X or and storing yeah. it, you know, at a higher level or whatever it may be, just being really open to the fact that um, hard to change our habits it's hard to change our preferences and so if there's even just a small amount of compromise that we can offer or not even compromise um, in our case but it, you know just different sort of creative problem solving really benefits our patients because it gives them options and it allows them to drive the process too.
1: Probably the best medical advice that I've received so far to date um, like for a practicing uh, provider is don't just do something stand there and this kind of goes back to what you had said before that, you know, the relationship really is the, the best thing that you can offer the patient. If today I can't convince you, whatever it is, if it's quitting smoking, if it's getting this vaccine, if it's um, trying to increase the safety around the firearms that are going to be in your home, whatever the issue is, um, you can't do anything unless you have a relationship. Yeah. Um, and pre- preserving that relationship as hard as it is, it has to be a, a high priority knowing that someday maybe I will I will be able to influence them. Uh, I'm also partial to, and I know that everybody is, um, it has its flaws, but I'm partial to the concept of, um, what's been described as libertarian paternalism. So the idea is essentially anybody to do them, or at least people resist you trying to force them to do things, but you can set, you can create an environment where it's easier for them to do those things. You Give them little nudges, you know, for example, and, and this, um, if you have a private practice, um, a family practice, having flyers in the waiting room that talk about um, increasing firearm safety in the home, mm-hmm. right? That That's so innocuous. In fact, it might be considered very helpful for somebody that has firearms in the home. Just like you might have a, are you interested in quitting smoking pamphlet in, yeah. in the office? You're not saying that they have to pick it up, but if they look over and they see it, and it's something that calls them and they pick it up, that that's a step toward making sure that people are safe. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, as as healthcare providers, that's going to be our biggest job: is can we just nudge people to slightly healthier habits to improve the, their overall well being? You know, yeah,
3: rarely are you going to find the magic words in a in that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, you know, fix someone. Yeah. Yeah. There's not behaviorally a, or change their minds or whatever. It's it's going to be a slow drip, and that's. You know, my understanding of, of medicine it's medicine requires patience. It was you know, much like, you know, bench science, you know, you're not gonna get the result now
2: i know from listening to my i'm not gonna like you know discuss any of their patients but like from hearing my friends who've gone into family medicine that can be really disheartening and really frustrating when you see a patient coming in with all these kinds of like you know diseases and stuff that it's like you know i know exactly how this could have been prevented but you just didn't listen so it's like it's very tempting to want to like be really forceful because you just know and like you know obviously in the case of firearms is going to be a lot more proximal because you're just like watching a dangerous situation unfold and you're like i just i just want to like grab you and like chic but it's it does not work that way yeah. it's and, just and, and that's just that's human that. nature yeah.
1: policy that is not meant to um not meant to be a punishment or not meant to disparage yeah. or uh turn somebody into a second class citizen or something like that but just to give a little bit of space for mm-hmm. example to to help people make healthier decisions right for example like the there's the waiting period thing Um, which is another way of saying, just in case you're trying to buy this firearm because you're in a bad mood, let's, let's give you a cool off period. Yeah. Um, which is not saying that you can't have the firearm. It's just creating an environment for greater safety. Just like we would try to do things like in grocery stores to put vegetables next to the register instead of candy bars to encourage healthier eating habits. Right. (gasps) Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let
3: people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. I think it's I, just as an observation that it just occurred to me. Like, I think it's interesting that I'm willing to wait a couple of days to get my order from Amazon. <laughs> my, my pants I ordered from Amazon. <laughs> But I might not be willing to wait the same amount of time to get my hands on that firearm. That
2: yeah.
1: so Maybe we should make all firearm purchases through Amazon. Uh,
3: well, like, uh, no prime. No
1: prime on this one. <laughs> it's the full seven days. But I, I think oh, I bring that up just...
2: Because now all I'm imagining is like some poor Amazon driver just like with a cartload. <laughs> <laughs> of in the back, like they had the most add- nervous like please tell me the safety is on every single one of
3: those. I just think I, I bring it up only not to make fun but to point out that people have weird Sort of motivations really weird when you when you yeah. start to think yeah. about like what what is it that motivates people? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just think it's I just think it's funny.
2: Yeah, it's like a lot of these things probably seem. And because I, th- I wonder if some of it is just the slippery slope argument where it's like, oh, once they start chipping away at one thing, they're starting to chip away at everything. And it's like, but this is why. Actually, I just made I just thought of something. I made a point to myself. Like this Good is- job. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> so proud. Insight. Yeah. Love
2: it. <laughs> this little Skyrim like. Ding. Um, <laughs> but no, because this is why it can be helpful instead of looking at it from a political agenda standpoint. Think of it as, okay, if we enact this policy, we'll take a look at the data and see if it improved. If it did improve, we'll know, okay, good. If it didn't improve, we'll know, well, okay, that didn't work. Let's not even bother with that anymore because that's not working. If our, you know, violence metrics improve, then we know, okay, we're on the right track. We should continue down this path.
3: But, you know, that 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 involves uh, putting forth policies in a, such a way as to acknowledge that they might not work.
2: Yeah,
1: Honestly, though, that might but, be like, that might be one of the healthier compromises. I'm sure somebody suggested it, and um, we have smart people around the world that are trying to solve problems, right? But the idea of suggesting this policy will exist for this long, mm-hmm. subject to a review of the data, yeah, it seems like a very reasonable approach to policy.
2: Yeah, yeah. like a lot of policies have and. To be honest, I feel like most policies have the this might not work asterisk because lawmakers, as far as I know, are not fortune tellers. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I just, but, like, I, I was, they
1: seem to think they are a lot of the time. Well, yeah, I was, yeah, was going to say, I think um,
3: I mean, we saw this during the pandemic. Right. You know, we we had these ideas about mitigation, I think, as though we knew what to do. And I think that turned, you know, some people yeah. off and and made it more difficult for the message to be heard um
2: well it's a fine line to walk because obviously you can never know for sure that like this is how it works this is how something's going to work but if you say we don't know for sure then people coming at it in bad faith will be like oh well you don't know so why are we even doing anything also yeah. so that basically no matter which way you put it whether you say yeah we're sure this will work or no we can never be 100 percent sure people are going to attack it and you just have to kind of it's a fine line you have to walk Which you think it's you fair towards?
1: to like whether or not okay so any policy that can't survive the public is inherently a bad policy, Mm -hmm. right? Because it didn't work. Right. Yeah. But, um, I think that this is, this is a very ethical standpoint and not a pragmatic standpoint, but here we are. Um, eh, ethically speaking, I guess to me, it doesn't really matter what's going to be the better approach to get it to work. I can't, um, excuse me. I can't assume surety that I don't have. Yeah. Right. Um I have to be honest with the people that I'm trying to communicate yeah. with. Yeah. And yeah. that's
2: I that's think where like exactly most like scientists and healthcare people are coming from. And like I am I do want to frame, I am not advocating lying to people and saying you're sure about something that you can't be sure about. Yeah. But it there is an element of and I know this is why a lot of people attacked COVID policies is because scientists were like, Well, we're pretty sure this is gonna work within like this boundary of safety. But then people get nervous when they hear that because they hear like there's a 1% chance that this will be this won't work or it'll be dangerous. And they're like, that that could be dangerous. And that's all they hear, Mm -hmm. which is is not something that I know the answer to. But I think it's just worth knowing that, like, almost all of these public health measures will have a degree of uncertainty because everything has a degree of uncertainty. And that's not a reason to say we shouldn't try.
0: I think what I like about the idea, I think it was the original way you framed it just a little bit ago, is the idea of a planned check-in and revisiting. I think that's one thing. I think thing that, that was your idea actually. Yeah. An idea was out there. An that's idea all. was placed. <laughs> Came at, out of the room. I think for some people it is, you know, especially when we're talking about issues of loss of freedom or independence or whatever it may be, saying, look, we're working really hard to take care of our people, particularly our children in this case, when it comes to firearms. We really want to try something. We think it has a good chance of working based on the data we'll reevaluate in two years because that seems like a reasonable time to see if it's making a difference and i think when it comes to firearm safety again like we're we still don't know nearly enough and so a lot of things Mm -hmm. we try are not going to be that effective it's like well this seemed great in practice or this seemed great in theory in practice it hasn't really reduced deaths what other approach could we take so i think when you talk about political compromise or even the the social compromise of trying to communicate across the divide saying look we need to try something And we're going to reevaluate. This isn't just going to be a law that changes and you never get, you know, whatever you wanted. We don't need to have another
2: legislative session to overturn it if it doesn't work. We'll just let it expire because it didn't work. Yeah,
0: either that or some sort of plan to to revisit it. Um, This all makes me think of one of the the most challenging parts of being, especially in public health, um, which is that if it's working well, People don't really know and don't really care. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, like, once you have public health measures that are doing what they should be doing most people are probably safer and healthier for it but they're not necessarily aware of all the work that was done and so i think that's yeah. the beauty of public health but then it's also the curse because when public health doesn't work well when you put out a covid policy and it kind of flops or it doesn't do what it intended everyone is so quick to criticize and recognize it, it re- break it work. down it didn't it, work right yeah. a perfect um,
1: example of this would be water right i
0: was just about to say water, water. yeah so they're the fact warm. that we
1: treat our water Um, is um, hands down one of the most successful public health campaigns over the last Mm -hmm. 130 Mm -hmm. years, right? Um, More deaths have been prevented just by having access to clean drinking water than almost any other thing. Because if you look Mm -hmm. at what the, like the leading causes of death were in 1900, um, the top five, most of them um, were at least in part waterborne illnesses, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Things like diphtheria or cholera, right? So, The fact that we have clean drinking water for most of our country, almost always, is like so taken for granted Mm -hmm. until things like Flint happened and then we're in an outrage, rightfully so. Like we we obviously don't want anybody to not have clean drinking water. The fact that we could go so long without recognizing the absolute miracle of public health that is clean drinking water Mm -hmm. kind of speaks to your point that when it works well, you're not sure that anything's happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and the problem with that is when it works well and you don't see anything happening, everybody starts wondering. Well, why are we paying? Yeah, why those are we doing do it? anything? Yeah,
0: right. William with firearm safety, if or when, hopefully when we have better policies and you know things are going in a better direction, um, you know, hypothetically, we could get to the point where people are like, "Well, why is all this stuff in place?" Because clearly, you know, again, this is very hypothetical. Yeah. I don't know if we'll get there, but you know, similar to vaccines, it's like well, I've never seen measles. I've never seen you know X, Y, Z. So why do I need to get vaccinated if it's such a low risk? It's like, no, you don't understand. We have to backtrack to why it's such a low risk. And so I think for firearm safety, I would hope we could get to a point where people were complaining because deaths were so low. That would be like public yeah. health had done its job and the public health people who did it would know it and they could be proud of themselves. It's okay if they're not getting recognition. But I do think it's one of the challenges that comes with doing a lot of the behind the scenes work that tries to improve lives in a way that just might not always be Acknowledge.
1: Yeah, I guess on the balance, if I had to pick a problem, that's the problem. Yeah, that I would I'd much rather deal
0: with a much l- better, yeah, much better problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, this
3: seems like a good time to ask our listeners to, um, you know, sort of get in touch with us and see if they have uh, thoughts on this particular topic. And and look, this is a good, also a good time for me to say that I always want to hear from listeners um, when we do things right, when we do things wrong. Um when your point of view isn't represented and it should have been love to hear from you write to us at the at gmail.com
2: you can yell at us all you want send us
3: a message at 347 short CT. i will play it on the show unless it's really nasty
1: <laughs> also like to say that today's episode is brought to us by clean drinking water don't take it for granted that's right <laughs> that's our show jeff thanks for uh come up with the topic and producing the show for me today Happy to have done it
3: <laughs> And Miranda, Kelsey, thanks for being here also to uh, to help us talk yeah, about you. it.
0: Thank you. You're
2: very welcome. Thank you.
3: What kind of human garbage would I be if I didn't thank you, Short Coats for making us a part of your week? If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, a- any place. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government. What, you, Miranda? Miranda? <laughs>
2: I'm just trying to provide useful visual aids.
3: And ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week.
1: (laughs) Well done, class.
2: I get bored during the sign-off. I want to have fun (laughs) with it.